Dear friends, good morning. Uh, it's nice to see everybody here. I'm very grateful that I drove in yesterday. I get a little nervous on the snowy roads, so thanks to Robert for driving everybody safely and for bringing the studded tires yeah, this morning. Um, the title of our uh, day of mindfulness today is uh, Walking the Path Through the World. Is that what we decided on? Okay. How the practice can help ourselves and others. Yeah, that's uh, pretty broad. Um, I was uh, uh, reflecting that one of the elements of the verse uh, I received uh, on the reception of the lamp uh, during the lamp transmission in the summer of 2018 at Plum Village was. Uh, this idea of right view, and um, one of the steps of the Eightfold Path, which we'll talk a little bit more about uh, later, but I have been realizing that uh, right view is uh, a little bit of my Dharma door. That's the way that I've engaged with uh, this practice. Uh, that's the way that um, I've been developing my understanding of, uh, of the Dharma, of the teachings of the Buddha. And so today we'll talk a little bit uh, about right view uh, in relation to the Eightfold Path as just a, a way of exploring how we do this practice. Uh, um, I always want to say the phrase out there, uh, but I guess it's in here too. Uh, you can use those um, terms as you wish. But uh, this idea of this walking the path through the world came about uh, partly because of my exploration, partly because of um, events within our uh, Sangha community, and partly uh, because of our current uh, social and political situation. And uh, there's an interesting question that somebody raised during uh, one of our Sangha sessions. And she asked, uh, how do we engage in these practices in difficult times with people who exploit kindness or people who exploit uh, understanding? And a kind of follow-up question to that was, how do we take on issues um, that affect our, our well-being, things like climate change and gun control, uh, systemic sexism and racism. Those are very deep questions, very powerful questions. And um, fortunately, we only have an hour, so I don't have time to uh, completely answer them. But we can talk about, uh, uh, we can begin that process, that uh, process of deep looking. And so, the fundamental understanding of the Buddha uh, was that there is suffering in the world, uh, that there is a cause of it, there's an end of it, and there's a path. Uh, the path is the Eightfold Path. And there have been cases in the sutras where uh, the Buddha said the only thing he teaches is how to end suffering. Um, and 
Whenever I find myself getting a little uh, caught by the words, by uh, the ideas, and starting to live kind of in that world of uh, inner thought, I remember that the Buddha taught that this is a practice to end suffering. Uh, It it doesn't ultimately matter what I think about something. in, in other words, it doesn't matter uh, what my view is about this thing, but it's about how we act and how we engage in the world. Um, the Eightfold Path uh, um, is made up of uh, the components of view and thinking. Uh, usually there's the uh, word right in front of these, like right view, right thinking. Um, And just know that that's implicit in there, but I also realize that sometimes when I, uh, in this current uh, political day and age, and in my own kind of thinking, uh, I get very hung up on right, uh, and wanting things to be right, and sometimes right means um, in line with my view. (laughs) And so I I want to drop that word today, but it's, it's there. So, uh, for me, the foundation is view, how we uh, see the world, how we see one another. Um, And from view comes our thinking. Uh, That is actually how we think about things. And and from those places develop um, the next three on the Eightfold Path, which describe uh, more of our engagement in the world, our speech, uh, our actions and our livelihood, um, and uh, to support our continued engagement with speech, action, and livelihood, as we're looking at our view and thinking, uh, we have the next uh, parts of the path: uh, mindfulness, um, uh, effort, and concentration. So that. For me, that's how the, these pieces all kind of fit together. They, um, they work in a, in a way of uh, continual support of one another. Uh, it's hard to uh, cultivate a, a, an openness of view, uh, not being attached to view, without concentration, without effort, without mindfulness. Uh, and um, it's hard to uh, speak in a way that's uh, ending suffering, uh, both in myself and in the other person, uh, without concentration, uh, view, thinking, etc. So they all are connected together. Um, And I don't know about you all, but my concentration is not uh, perfect. when I sit on the cushion and I concentrate on my breathing, uh, I sometimes wander, uh, sometimes forget what I'm doing, sometimes I'm thinking about uh, something else. And the invitation in this practice is to just bring it back. We're training our concentration. Um, and, and it's important that we never say, well, don't concentrate until your concentration is perfect. 
right? And why in the world would we say, well, don't act in the world until your actions are perfect? Uh, don't speak until your speech is perfect. Uh, it's a process. It's an engagement. And in fact, um, acting, speaking, having our livelihood in the world is a wonderful way of uh, kind of noticing where uh, we might want to put a little more attention, um, ways that we might want to develop uh, our end uh, our end of suffering, might want to develop ways of ending suffering. So I think those the speech, action, and livelihood, um, we tend to be a little hesitant to engage in those, uh, primarily because they involve other people. Uh, if my concentration is terrible uh, on a particular day, um, you know, I don't want to say no harm done, but less harm done, <laughs> right? Uh, but if my speech is not uh, skillful, uh, I can really hurt somebody else. Um, and I can really hurt myself uh, if my actions are unskillful. Um, so there is a, a little bit of a difference uh, between the way that we uh, uh, engage in this practice outwardly and engage uh, inwardly. But I do want to encourage us that uh, that shouldn't stop us from trying. Uh, it shouldn't stop us from uh, continuing to engage in this practice outwardly with others. Um, and the way that we engage in this uh, practice outwardly will look very different depending where we are and who we're talking to and when we're talking. Um, <clears throat> the uh, Zen Center that uh, I did the chaplaincy training at, it's called Upaya Zen Center. And Upaya is a Sanskrit word which means skillful means. Um, and so today we'll, we'll look a little bit about skillful means. Uh, you know, a very uh, great example is, you know, when my seven-year-old is on his bike and he's cruising through an intersection and a car is coming, that's really not the time to engage in a Dharma talk, right? to talk about uh, uh, view, to talk about um, uh, cultivating the end of suffering. Right? That's not the time. It's the time to say, stop. Um, for his safety. And uh, also, you know, it comes out of uh, my fears. But uh, if I were to worry about right speech in that moment, uh, it could be disastrous. And I think we can think of other times or examples where uh, not speaking because we aren't uh, sure that our speech is right speech might cause more harm. It also might cause harm. We don't know. We have to try. Um, our, um, the reason we have a, a sangha, a community to come together, is both to talk about our experiences, um, both to help each other uh, share examples, uh, share our own experience with developing these these practices, 
and uh, and also to challenge one another. Um, if uh, I were engaged in meditation practice, but I was really fidgety, I would hope somebody would say something to me uh, and say that, hey, you know, you're, I noticed you're a little, a little antsy today. Uh, everything okay? Um, but likewise, uh, when we speak or act, uh, our sangha is there to help uh, support us, to help um, uh, support us in the sense of uh, giving us, lifting us up, but also um, letting us know, uh, you know, that wasn't actually appropriate. Uh, that caused harm. And hopefully our response inside uh, can be thank you. Because my view uh, wasn't developed in that area yet. Uh, now I can see differently. I can see how my words and actions have impacted. Um, this is um, this is a wonderful uh, practice to be able to learn and grow and to have our view uh, shaped and change. Ultimately, right view is not having a view. Uh, being able to see things just as they are. Uh, most of the time, we will all uh, live with a view. Uh, very rarely, we might get a glimpse of things just as they are. Uh, and those experiences are wonderful touchstones along the path. Um, and then we come back. Uh, just like with our breathing, we come back. Come back to the breath. Come back to the body. Come back to um, working with the view that we have. Um, <clears throat> for me, the, the Eightfold Path is a very grounding uh, practice. Because it provides the, uh, the stability and the, the framework for kind of examining and looking at view, thinking, speech, action, livelihood, concentration, uh, mindfulness, and effort. Um, and as we uh, develop that, uh, we become more responsive rather than reactive. Um, I can imagine that uh, there are times when my kid is cruising across the intersection that I actually respond to the situation rather than react. But you can feel that it's different. Uh, you can see that a reaction would be born of panic and fear. A response might be, um, might outwardly look exactly the same. Might have that same stop. But there's a difference inside. Uh, it's not born of, uh, of uh, fear in that moment. It's born of um, love, compassion, and a desire to end suffering. That's rare for me in those situations where you know my children are in physical harm, but it, it does happen. Um, so, um, One of the practices that we can engage in to help develop 
uh, right view about a situation so that our actions, our speech, our livelihood is born of right view. Um, in addition to the uh, uh, practices of mindfulness, concentration, and effort, uh, I, are the um, three doors of liberation that Thich Nhat Hanh talks about. Um, we, in, in Buddhist traditions, we talk about the three doors of uh, non-self, impermanence, and nirvana. Um, but Thay has put a little bit of, uh, Thay is a, um, kind of a, a familiar reverential name for Thich Nhat Hanh, it means teacher, like beloved teacher. Uh, so Thay has put a, um, offered us the teachings of uh, non-self, uh, same as the other ones, but also of signlessness and aimlessness uh, or goallessness. So we'll talk a little bit about those. Um, I learned recently, and this um, surprised me and also bore out uh, my experience, that when our views are attacked, uh, our bodies respond physically as though we are in mortal danger. Um, so if somebody challenges something that I believe, uh, my body mounts a fight or flight or freeze response. Uh, to me, that knowing that explains so much <laughs> about uh, why we get into such uh, profound arguments and disagreements. We are actually trying to protect uh, in our bodies and our minds are trying to protect um, what we feel is a mortal threat. Um, and so it's no wonder that uh, when we hear something that challenges us or we challenge somebody else, that there is this uh, very strong response, very visceral um, response. And this practice of uh, non-self helps me to mitigate some of that, um, that feeling of attack when somebody is challenging my view. I can't help it. It's just what my body does. Um, but on the other hand, uh, we can look at um, non-self as a way, as an antidote to that. We talk about in this practice that our bodies, our, our ideas of self and our physical bodies are made up of things that are not our body and our ideas. So in other words, um, you know, I think of my body um, as this uh, solid, stable, um, unchanging thing. Uh, and then when it does change, we... Um, you know, think about, well, I have to get it back to where it was. Or, I guess this is my new body. <laughs> but of course, you know, our physical bodies are made up of so much. Uh, we're made up of each other from the air we're sharing. Uh, we're made up of uh, the water that we drink. Uh, made up of uh, the food that we eat. Uh, we're made up of the way that we treat our bodies. So our, our bodies are uh, um, 
made up of all things that are not our body. And we can extend that to our views, to the way that we see the world. The way that we see the world uh, feels very solid, very stable, uh, and unchanging. But of course, our views are made up of all things that are not our views. They're made up from our family system, uh, from our social system, from the people we talk to, uh, the books we read. Mm. And we put that together in a, a kind of coherent story about how the world is. And then um, when that is challenged, uh, we feel like it's a challenge against our body. And so we want to protect that. And this insight is helpful uh, that our views, just like our bodies, are made up of uh, non-self. It helps with uh, when we feel that reaction, uh, when we feel our heart rate going up, when we feel that desire to, um, to lash out, to protect, to make you see my view so that I feel safe. Um, when we see that come up, uh, we can take a breath and we can think about, where does this come from? Engage that uh, curiosity, that uh, mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And in the moment, we may not do that. Uh, but luckily, we have lots of other moments than just in the moment, so we can do that later, or we can do it before. Um, and maybe if we're lucky, during. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a liberating practice uh, to be able uh, to release uh, our views. And in fact, for me, um, I actually am delighted now when I get new information that changes my mind, that changes my thinking. I enjoy um, being wrong and uh, having seen the world wrong. And it's a delight to shed those things, and for someone to say, hey, this is actually how the world is. Thank you, that's wonderful. Uh, And there's no regret about the old uh, view, but it's just a a cause for celebration. And now I see things differently. And I I was trying to think of a semi-non-controversial example in my life. Uh, And so I'm going to pick on um, recycling. And to preface, recycling is great. Don't stop. Um, And then I'll say that again at the end, because um, I don't know if you all are aware, but uh, recycling in the United States has taken quite a turn. Um, We used to uh, take our trash, our recyclables, and ship them to China, uh, where then they would recycle them for us, uh, where they would uh, break them down. Uh, And we had no infrastructure, or very little infrastructure here in the United States to take care of that. 
So uh, recently, a couple of years ago, China said, no thanks, we don't really want your trash anymore. And part of it is because we're bad recyclers. We uh, put dirty things in there and things that weren't supposed to go in there. And they said, yeah, we don't really want... Uh, I'm sure it's a little more complicated than that, though. Um, <laughs> but they said, we don't really want that anymore. Um, my father-in-law lives uh, in the Chicago area, and he said they still put recycle bins out, and they just... Uh, the garbage truck just comes by and puts them in the landfill uh, because they don't have a place to take them. Um, and if that's not enough, um, I also recently learned uh, that the uh, plastics industry was very excited about recycling um, because it put the burden on you and me uh, to take care of the plastics. Um, the uh, plastic industry uh, didn't actually need to change a thing about their practices. Uh, rather, they uh, invited us to change our habits uh, so that we would uh, uh, be responsible. Um, and when I heard that uh, and learned that, uh, it hurt. Uh, it felt like a physical attack. Because uh, that is not how I viewed uh, the action of recycling. Um, and so, for me, it's changed the way that I think about it. And Rather than being um, digging my heels in more, which I could have done and said, well, it's still a good thing and we all need to do it more, and, um, which is true. Um, <laughs> but it made me realize that uh, I've been putting my attention of change in the wrong place. I've been putting that attention of change on me um, rather than on the uh, industries that produce this. Uh, produce this waste. And so just like our bodies and our views are made up of non-us elements, everything else is made up of non-it elements, including us. Um, that system put in place uh, with the support of the plastics industry is made up of me and it's made up of you and, and many, many other people. And, and this has been a very helpful insight in looking at some of these larger uh, issues. But we are a part of these systems too. Um, when I organized my life uh, to mitigate the effects of climate change um, to the best uh, or to a little bit of my ability, uh, it makes me feel better. And it makes me um, forget that I'm still a part of the system that's causing climate change. Um, 
Likewise with uh, and I use the phrase uh, might be charged uh, sensible gun control that when I choose not to own a firearm uh, that doesn't remove me from the system that's in place So the responsibility uh, at some point uh, in our, uh, at least in my thinking and in the way that I uh, kind of developed, shifted to personal responsibility and that that was enough. But um, non-self, this this practice of non-self, and I say practice because uh, I don't want us to Uh, get caught up in the idea of non-self. But it's an actual practice, a way of shaping and changing our view and of engaging. This uh, practice helps us to avoid being uh, disengaged and detached. Uh, But rather it calls us to see um, how are we making up all of the non-self elements out there. Uh, not uh, just how are we uh, made up of non-self elements. And to uh, honestly accept our place in those uh, systems so that we can then move forward and work to change. And that's going to look different for everybody. For some of us, it will be supporting people uh, who are directly engaged, um, either at the legislative level or in other places, and for some of us, it will be that direct engagement. But it does allow us to have that uh, flexibility in our uh, in our view, and to let our minds be changed um, as we get more evidence and more information. To just so it's okay, it's it's all right to change our minds. Mm. Although, don't put it down on Twitter. Uh, because nobody will let you forget it uh, if you change your mind later. And the the second uh, practice of the Doors of Liberation, the finelessness, uh, I like to think of this as um, kind of an outward expression of non-self. So non-self, we tend to focus on kind of our views and our thinking, Signlessness is a way of doing that practice um, kind of outside of our uh, internal or or physical experience. Uh, So we notice when we're caught by um, this person is a fill in the blank. Uh, We're hanging a sign on that person. Uh, We are limiting that person uh, to our view of what that sign means. Um, we were talking about, uh, I was talking about this with my children, uh, a little bit about signlessness. And I said, uh, uh, one of Thich Nhat Hanh's quotes that um, I learned through Michael Saborski is that where there is perception, there is deception. And uh, he takes out, he looks at his watch, he's like, well, 
my perception, I can see that I have a watch here and what time it is, so there's no deception there. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and I, well, that's true. And um, your watch is made up of uh, liquid crystals that are getting an electrical charge that form into a symbol that then your brain looks at and interprets as what time it is. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> kids, kids are great. They're just, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And, um, but um, that uh, signlessness, that ability to, uh, um, to challenge our, our view of what we think we see, um, is a wonderful way of bringing this practice out into the world. Right. Our brains uh, often tell our, our senses what they should be seeing. Uh, that's how optical illusions work, because uh, it, the information that comes in through our senses and what the brain thinks it should be are not necessarily in concert, and so things look different. Um, so when we are, are looking around at each other, uh, when we're hearing uh, the sounds, um, much of that is our brain telling us uh, what we are hearing and what we are seeing. Based on past experience, based on learning, uh, based on our views of what the world is supposed to be like. I've had this experience uh, when I first moved to Montana in, uh, 21 years ago and would walk around. Uh, and initially, everything just looked like you know, green. <laughs> and then uh, as I was able to learn to identify different uh, plants, different... Um, flowers, uh, then it doesn't just look green anymore. Uh, you start to see kind of the individual uh, organisms that are growing on the uh, forest floor. Um, and not only that, but maybe you start to see them when they're not flowering, but you know what the flower will look like and when it will look like uh, a flower. Um, but that, uh, a lot of that is my brain um, now having some more information and saying like, oh, now you can, now this green mass actually has some definition to it, has some shape, has some uh, difference. Um, but it's uh, very interesting um, to learn that and to know that. And it makes me not trust um, my senses all the time. Uh, it's spared a lot of arguments in our household when uh, someone says, well, you didn't say that. You know, in my mind, I'm certain I said it. <laughs> uh, but then, maybe I didn't. Because uh, maybe my brain just created this situation where I remember saying it, but it didn't actually happen. Maybe I thought about saying it. Now, this is dangerous because my son has learned this. <laughs> and uh, uh, did you practice your violin? Yes, I did. And so you ask someone else, did he practice? No, he didn't. Oh, well, I, in my mind, I thought I did. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So remember we said that uh, sometimes uh, uh, people figure out ways to exploit our practice. Uh, um, well, it's okay. I'd rather, I'd rather that, uh, that error. But it, it's, um, it's very liberating uh, when we hear that, um, when we can say, yeah, maybe I didn't do that. Or thank you for sharing your experience of what happened, because that wasn't my experience. Uh, but my experience is based on my views and what um, my senses are telling me and what my brain is telling my senses that they are experiencing. Um, and it's wonderful to have people share their experiences. Uh, because it, it provides us with a, a ability um, to deeply listen and to see how uh, this, um, this situation that I am certain of uh, has a lot of room for interpretation, for movement, uh, for growth, uh, for sharing experiences together. We talk a lot about, um, especially in uh, in groups that are working actively to uh, dismantle uh, sexism, uh, racism, uh, classism, um, uh, patriarchy. Uh, in in groups that are working with that, we hear a lot about intention and impact. Um, And it's important for us as practitioners uh, to receive um, feedback about the way that our speech has in, or our actions have impacted someone else, um, to hear that, and to not try to hide behind intention, not try to hide behind, well, I didn't mean to. Um, you know, a helpful response for me has been, thank you. Uh, when somebody shares their pain, thank you. Um, because uh, it doesn't matter what I meant, but someone I have caused suffering. And um, likewise, as uh, practitioners, uh, if I am impacted uh, negatively, I do try to hold a shared whole view of that person, uh, try to view that person generously, uh, and let them know. Um, I think in a lot, a lot of times in uh, this work, uh, uh, we focus on the impact um, and to be fair, there are a lot of circumstances where there needs to be a, kind of a lion's roar of uh, response. There needs to be a very firm response. And uh, I would encourage us to hold others in that view of generosity uh, and in that view of um, uh, intention. It's much, much easier for me to do that with people who aren't in my sangha. Uh, 
when I talk with uh, my coworkers and they say something that has an impact, it's much easier for me to uh, say like, oh, well, I will just, you know, I'll share with that person. The people in my Sangha, I have this view, this is a wrong view, that they should know better. And uh, the reason we are a Sangha is that we don't know better. That we can talk to each other, that we can share our pain and our suffering and the way that others are impacting us. Um, and then we can all. Come at you. A bug? Yeah, by your phone. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> It'll be okay. You poisonous? <laughs> <laughs> you should know by now if you've been in Montana. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, likewise, we. Uh, uh, share how uh, we're impacted while holding our Sangha members. Because we, I hope that we trust that our Sangha is working towards ending suffering. Uh, and we're not good at it all the time. Um, we, uh, I hope that you all don't judge me if my mindfulness wanders during a sitting period. Um, but I, uh, like I said before, I do hope that you would uh, let me know if my fidgetiness is impacting. Uh, and same goes for my actions and my speech. Uh, you know, we're doing our best. Uh, sometimes, sometimes we're not. Sometimes, uh, you know, circumstances are such that we are not at our best. Um, but please don't confuse that holding someone generously and lovingly is the same as. Uh, giving them a pass. Uh, they're not the same thing. Um, but it does change how we might approach that person. And um, signlessness uh, can help us in the midst of a conflict. Uh, because we can start to imagine, what am I uh, hanging on this other person right now? And when I say hanging on, I'm actually imagining like a little sandwich board. You know, it's like, oh, you were this person. And then I just look at the sandwich board and I forget to look up at the person in front of me. Um, but that practice of signlessness, of remembering um, uh, that, that curiosity, uh, even when we're feeling, uh, when we're feeling the suffering that results from our causing suffering. Yeah. That's a painful place to be in. But we can also invite that, uh, that same kind of curiosity and uh, that same um, uh, practice of signlessness in that moment too. Yeah. Because our, our Sangha members uh, yeah. are precious. Yeah. We don't get to do this uh, in this way uh, with many other people. I imagine standing on the uh, floor of our uh, legislature, um, you know, you, you might not uh, be able to, um, might not be able to have that same trust in the people in front of you. But we can still engage in that practice of signlessness uh, and keep looking, keep looking, keep looking, keep listening deeper deeper. Mm. 
because they too are made up of non-self elements. And then this third uh, practice that helps shape view uh, is of aimlessness. Uh, I heard aimlessness encapsulated perfectly uh, by Roshi Joan Halifax as a clear direction, no attachment to outcome. Uh, so you know where you're going, but you don't know where you're going to end up. Um, and that, uh, that sense of aimlessness, that having a path, you know, ending climate change is a path. Um, that is a clear direction. And we don't know exactly what the outcome is going to be. Um, but uh, knowing, not knowing what the outcome will look like keeps our minds open, keeps possibility open, uh, keeps our mind fresh. Uh, our minds get stale uh, when we uh, work towards something that we have a vision, uh, when we work towards, not something that we have a vision of, but when we work towards uh, enacting that vision in exactly the way we think. Uh, for example, I'll bring my family back in uh, the dinner table. <laughs> uh, I have a vision of us sitting and eating and talking, and um, my youngest has a vision of uh, getting up like 800 times and just walking around. <laughs> Coming back to his seat. And it's kind of like the breath. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, and there are times when I'm tired and I want my vision the way I want my vision. And I get mad. That's not really that helpful. I'm not aimless. Um, uh, when I am aimless, uh, we laugh a lot more. Uh, we have a lot more fun. Um, we joke about the fact that he's gotten up 800 times, uh, and he thinks it's funny too. And, <laughs> and then often he sits for the rest of the time after that. So um, we have a direction, uh, but the, uh, when I'm attached to the outcome, I lose that uh, ability to be a little more aimless. Um, things uh, change very quickly, uh, very quickly. And aimlessness helps us adapt to those changes. Yeah. It's kind of like our GPS rerouting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. Um, this practice of aimlessness uh, can be very frightening. Um, because um, for these bigger things that aren't... Uh, you know, the dinner table that's going to be done in 20 minutes, for the fate of our planet, um, for children who are uh, killed because of gun, uh, lack of gun regulation. Um, aimlessness can be frightening. Uh, because we very much want an outcome in a particular way. Yeah. And this, when that comes up, that's where uh, we require our faith. Um, faith is a, one of the five powers in Buddhist practice. But our faith in this practice, um, 
our faith in the Sangha. Um, and even if we're feeling faithless about our uh, legislators or our elected officials, uh, faith that, um, uh, that we are able to move uh, aimlessly. We have a direction. Uh, the outcome might not look like what we expect it to. But we still try. We still engage. Uh, we still uh, have our actions, our speech, our livelihood um, <coughs> grounded in view, mindfulness, and, uh, and effort. Um, it doesn't make us uh, stop trying. Um, so cultivating uh, this right view and thinking um, helps our actions, our speech, and our livelihood. Uh, I think we can see how um, signlessness, aimlessness, the, these practices, uh, non-self, uh, can in the moment change maybe how we are speaking or how we're acting or how we're viewing another person. Um, and so, uh, as I was talking about uh, in the beginning, this idea of skillful means of upaya, uh, really comes into play uh, uh, when we bring this practice outside of the Sangha. It, it applies here too, um, but many people that we deal with aren't part of our Sangha, aren't part of uh, this community. They aren't engaging in the same practices that we are. Uh, and uh, upaya, uh, this idea of, of skillful means of Kind of changing our uh, the way that we engage depending on circumstances uh, is grounded in this eightfold path uh, because skillful means are born of seeing things are, as they are uh, and then acting as it is. Uh, one of the great examples that I read about uh, was by Jarvis J. Masters, who is a, a inmate. Uh, he was a murderer uh, and was um, sentenced to death row in San Quentin uh, in California. He's still there 30 years later. Uh, he converted to Buddhism and is actually a very accomplished uh, practitioner um, despite his really grisly past. Uh, and a new person came into the prison and had uh, attempted suicide. Uh, and the person... Um, was released from watch and back into the yard and had been talking about how they were going to um, attempt suicide again. And so Jarvis uh, J. Masters walked up to the person and uh, said, hey, um, I really like your shoes. And the guy said, well, thanks. He's like, and then Jarvis said, can I have them? And the guy said, what are you talking about? He's like, well, my shoes are old and ratty. You have nice new tennis shoes. Um, and you're going to be dead soon. So you don't really need nice shoes, do you? And the guy got very angry. And, uh, but he kept at him. And he said, you also have a nice TV. Uh, obviously, you've got some family or friends who really like you because they gave you enough money to buy that TV from the commissary. He's like, my TV is black and white, barely works. Can I have it? And, um, but you can see what he did. Um, he changed the person's thinking uh, to his current situation to 
what he has to gratitude and to the people who supported him. Uh, because you don't get nice new shoes uh, in prison unless you have people uh, who are supporting you. And what a beautiful example of right speech. Uh, it could have gone horribly wrong, too. Uh, but at that time, uh, Jarvis J. Masters trusted had faith in the practice and and saw uh, more than just this situation and adopted a skillful means uh, to work work at that. You know, and um, I'd like to give a brief counterexample of uh, where skillful means uh, wasn't adopted very well. Uh, a friend of mine was downtown working with some uh, refugees who had uh, immigrated to Missoula uh, as part of the, through the soft landing program. And she was downtown in Missoula uh, helping them uh, shop, going to stores or whatnot. And uh, at that time there was a protest and they were marching down the street and they were very angry. And and my friend didn't know what they were uh, marching about, but she did know it had something to do with refugees. But she was afraid because she didn't know if their anger was directed towards them or for them. Uh, all she knew was that they were angry and that it was something having to do with refugees. Uh, I think that's a, uh, an example of, um, of action uh, that needs to take place. Uh, the treatment of refugees, uh, they need support. But it's an action grounded in anger. Uh, we get angry when we hear about these things, uh, when we hear about the way immigrants are treated, or when we hear about um, not just inaction about climate change, but it feels like uh, intentional action to hasten it. Uh, we get angry. Um, I do. And uh, my practice is to um, allow that anger um, to be there. And then when I organize action, um, either with others or independently, to to make it not born of that anger. Um, that anger indicates to me where I would like to put some attention, uh, and then my action isn't um, uh, coming out of that anger. Uh, because when it does, uh, you just become another angry mob. Mm -hmm. um, and. Um, Many of these issues are just too big for me alone. So that's why we come together as a Sangha. And um, there's movement uh, within our communities to keep looking at these things. Uh, um, both uh, perhaps at some point of direct action, uh, but also as a way of supporting one another, uh, a way of um, finding ways uh, to, to change our views. Uh, 
and hopefully to ground our actions not in anger, uh, but in this practice of uh, non-self and deep looking. Uh, deep looking. Um, I chose our uh, sutra today uh, for a number of reasons. There's there's a lot in there, uh, and depending how you read it. Um, I mean, there's a part of me that when I read that, I see the Buddha and Shariputra as part of like the old, good old boys network, kind of ribbing each other on stage, right? And uh, um, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Uh, but when I was reading it and hearing it uh, this morning, I realized that uh, we're all Shariputra and we're all the other monk. Um, we are all uh, solid in our practice, um, and we are all uh, sharing our wrong views about others. Um, and there's a part of me that says, what would happen if Shariputra really did bump into us and didn't say sorry? What would that sutra look like? Um, and that's an interesting sutra that uh, maybe we can uh, kind of write in our hearts. Uh, what would that look like then? Um, when the favored uh, student of the Buddha uh, actually did do something uh, to slander another monk. Um, but this reminder, uh, the, the other interesting thing about the sutra is uh, Shariputra's strength that he speaks from. Um, you know, it's called the lion's roar. So he really, um, he doesn't uh, hold back. But not once in there does he uh, denigrate the other monk. Uh, I guess directly. <laughs> he does a little bit indirectly. But not once does he uh, say that um, uh, the other monk is a bad person. He doesn't hang a sign on him. Uh, he talks about his own practice. Um, and so, I would like to remind us, too, that uh, There is a lot of responsibility uh, for us in the world. Um, you know, we can't just be responsible for our uh, ourself as a way of um, as a way of hiding from the systems that we're a part of, uh, which is what I uh, which is what I do sometimes. I think that I have this right view. And my view is uh, I'm going to do these actions just in my little corner, and that's enough. Um, but I do want to remind us that uh, when we uh, end some suffering in us, uh, even just for a moment, and likewise when we cultivate joy, uh, even for just a moment, the whole world 
suffers a little bit less and is a little bit more joyful uh, in that moment. Uh, it may not uh, carry over for all the other moments, but in that moment, um, the world is brighter um, because of our practice. You can see, um, sometimes you can see the, those knots, the, the knots of the system uh, that uh, is causing harm loosen a little bit when we loosen a little bit about that. Um, suffering is not enough. Uh, we do need uh, to practice our joy, our um, excitement. And um, our transformation, our ending of suffering, because uh, this is the path of a bodhisattva. Um, our ending of suffering is intimately tied with the ending of the suffering in the world. Um, and likewise, uh, uh, transformation of these uh, systems. And when I say system, I, I'm using a little bit of shorthand, but the systems in place of, um, that are leading to um, all the things we've been talking about. Uh, climate change, uh, sexism, patriarchy, racism, uh, ageism, classism. Uh, all of the, that's what I mean by systems. Um, in order for those to transform, uh, we must see that we are a part of those systems uh, and transform them um, through us. They're not separate. Um, we are intimately a part of them. Um, that's a hard realization. But it's one uh, that allows us to move forward and allows us to uh, in begin the work of transformation.